Dude, just wanted to call and say how fucking sick the episodes are. So sick. It's like my favorite thing to listen to now. Todd Ruffs. I feel like we're going to definitely top season one. From Super High Quality Productions, this is season two of the Super High Quality Podcast with the War on Drugs. Oh my gosh. Yes. Holy cow. That's beautiful. Holy shit. Ooh, wow. Fuck. Dang. I'm Dominic East, and this is I Don't Live Here Anymore, part two. Okay, so I went through my calendar to see if I could uh, write down all the studios that I recorded in for this record. Outlier in upstate New York. Studio G. Electric Lady. Electrovox. Vox. Vox. In LA. East West. Sunset. And United. Bach. Sound City. Oh, um, Boulevard. Did some sacks at Boulevard. Pretty good list. Pretty good list. Yeah, the studio thing, I mean, the studios, there's a lot of places where, I mean, the studio is just a vehicle for me to be able to get everybody together to work on music, to be inspired, to hopefully crack something open. I just need a place that can accommodate enough people and enough ideas that we can work. So for this part of our look inside, I don't live here anymore. Let's get into the May 2019 sessions at Electrovox in Los Angeles. It sort of is like the center point of the record making. Whereas like Outlier was kind of the beginning. And then the quarantine remote recording we did was the end. It was like Vox was sort of this like axis point in the middle. Everyone was there at the same time. And it was sort of, for me, I remember when I got like, oh, wow, I'm starting to get this like general idea of what this record's going to sound like. And I just started getting really stoked about it. There's like a big crew there, you know, it was, ni- was kind of like nice to have everyone in the room playing. It was just like that vibe of having, you know, the family vibe of having everyone kind of hanging out and making music together and constantly creating. Nothing better, right? <laughs> Nothing better. <laughs> I had, I definitely had like some heavy stuff going on at home that could kind of come out there, and it was really, uh, it was nice to have my friends there, you know. And I think some of that came out in the music, like for sure. Banging on a drum, you turn me loose. Maybe I'm the living proof What have I been running? Me and Charlie and Robbie were staying in this really cool old house up in Silver Lake and, you know, driving in together every morning and it was just, it was awesome. I went down to the corner It was sort of like the pivot point of the record for me. They're building up my blood 
Maybe I've been gone too long. I can't go back. All well, the studio, it's like it's gone now. Actually, they they closed. Woody closed it down. Oh wow! Pretty quickly, actually. I think closed it down in like October or November of 2020. Wow, I had no idea. But I'm rising. Electrovox is the, um, it was, I think, the oldest recording studio in L.A. or, you know, like continuing existence studio in L.A. I mean, it was active back in, what's, what's, the, what's the lot across the Paramount. way? Oh, Paramount, yeah. Paramount. I mean, they, they, they would like be running like, you know, radio show stuff back and forth, I think, back in the day. It had just become known as like the place with um, just all the best gear. I mean, it was just like. Classic old, you know, asbestos rooms. Like, it's like Sean told me, it's like, it's the only place in L.A. where you could dial in, like, that sound, like that 70s thing. Like, so to the T, like, all the gear was really focused on, like, a pretty specific period of time. The sound of that place is is the sound of, like, 70s kind of L.A., whatever, rock and roll. But yeah, I mean, I I got the band together there because I knew that the equipment was what it was and I'd worked there a bunch before and I knew that they had gear, which is like when you're bringing a bunch of people in, there's there's sounds ready to be had. You know, there's drum sets that we loved and that we've used before and like, yeah, um, we just, there's plenty of shit there to set up and start working on songs, you know? Like like any uh, like any LA studio, it's full it's full of camcos, right? I mean these ones, these ones have some story. I mean all all the gear there has stories, you know. You know there are those those um, the darker darker mahogany camcos are the ones I love, and Anthony used those. Um, they just you know they belong to Jim Gordon allegedly. You know they sound incredible there. I don't know. I mean it's just. I mean there's so many so many cool cool drum sets couple couple three or three or four camco kits there's that weird trikeson kit you know they've got those blameyer you know karen carpenter concert toms are those the fiberglass ones those fiberglass ones yeah there was apparently like five sets of those ever made like two of them belonged to hal blaine and one of them ringo bought for george harrison one of them karen carpenter it was karen carpenter's and then i think supposedly that set is the fifth set those are the only ones that didn't go to someone uh cool yeah um yeah i mean it's, it's just an amazing amazing place yeah there's a lot of stuff there yeah the, all that wrecking crew stuff yeah yeah i remember the grand piano is count basies that piano is amazing right a box of metal that was tom waits's you know a bunch of just things that make a make a <laughs> fucking racket the vibraphone from Pet Sounds, right? Yeah, or from the, Pet Sounds or the marimba. 
anyone see any like certificate of authenticity or did Woody just have a uh, label maker? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. I think per square foot, I can't imagine more fun gear existing. There's a lot of great studios and a lot of great studios don't have any toys. Like you just, you bring your own fucking toys, you know, they have, they have a desk and a great room and that's what you're paying for. And then Vox is kind of the opposite where, I mean, there's like toys everywhere. And then there's a back room with the real toys. Did I use any of those toys on the record? Mm, not sure. <laughs> Spending three weeks at that place is a great way to, you know, investigate all these songs you have, you know, and just experiment. You're not really in the thick of the record yet. You're still just experimenting and working on demos you have and seeing what's what works and hoping that there's like a breakthrough moment but yeah it's like that's the perfect place to just like hack away at a bunch of ideas you know there's no real place like that anywhere To be fair, I, I invited 19 people to a studio, to a recording session, and all of a sudden I realized that uh, we were doing, you know, sax or something, or like acoustic. So I was like, we have this massive room, we should like... Yeah, the Nugget Farm. We just made, yeah, we just made that room into just like a, a B room, which was cool. We got a ton of sweet shit out of that room. I feel like Dave, John, and I really got into the the Nugget Farm situation. Um, but yeah, they 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 just had so many keyboards, and there was also a storage room, which I couldn't tell if was like for stuff that was broken or not broken. <laughs> and there's great stuff everywhere. The thing is, with like any great studio and any recording session, you always get a little bit of red light fever. But when there's 19 people there, like. You're just, there's just no room for like, hey, can I fuck around with this OBX? You know, right. like might take me two hours to get a sound. And like there's fucking 19 people there, all great musicians waiting to like contribute to the recording. So like you can't really explore in the main room. If you're just going to plug in like some synth you've never even fucking turned on before, you're not going to like sit there in the main room and just waste time. When you're in the B room, you're just sitting around. Um, you can just play, and a lot sometimes weird shit comes out. Yeah, I mean, it's actually to be fair to the B room, we ended up getting some really important stuff in that room for sure. Really? Yeah, I mean, mainly the vocoder <laughs> stuff. Cool. <laughs> It was really helpful, I think. It was a pretty ideal situation. It, it, it solved a lot of problems that I find in studio sessions like that. 
I mean, just in general, it was a way for people to keep warm creatively, burn off some of that creative energy and stay creative and stay in a musical mindset while other stuff was going on instead of just like the normal studio thing of like sitting around and staring at your phone or like eating or something. Well, one song that really made an impression at the Vox sessions was Living Proof. So let's go back to Brooklyn in the summer of 2018 and learn a little bit more about how that song came to be. What does like Mike Block bring to a session? Great conversation. Yeah, great conversation, a bag of Astro Burger. <laughs> but that was either an extra day or it was the end of the day where there was kind of um, some extra time. I think there was like two hours left or something. And I was like, yeah, I guess we could just pack up. And Block was like, or maybe it was Berker, I forget, but someone was like, oh, I mean, don't you have anything else? We have the time. You booked this time in the studio. Don't just throw away your time, you know? And I was like, yeah, you're right. We should use all the time we paid for. And Adam took out um, this, just his voice memo that he was like, yeah, I just got this, you know, sort of idea that's like kicking around, you know? And, he, and of course it was like this amazing thing, but but it, it was this chord progression. Um, that he started playing on piano. I went into the ISO room where they have this beautiful Steinway because I was like, oh, maybe there's a song on piano I could like demo or something. And I was listening to my voice memos and there was a song I had like strummed into my acoustic or a strummed on my acoustic into my phone maybe a week earlier when I was in Philly. Very quick, just like a couple chords in this melody. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. In that moment, I really liked that little progression. So I just started playing the progression and like that, Mike Block started playing this beautiful, like kind of like reverbed out tremolo thing on his guitar. He just kind of arbitrarily put his champ onto a tremolo setting. And then I kind of took the mix of the, the clean guitar off of it. So it's entirely tremolo. And I just, I just played, I just played the effect. And immediately there was like a vibe happening And I think within 30 minutes, the arrangement of that song happened. You know, each take we did, I was like, oh man, it's getting better each time. We just played it over and over again, you know, and, and until until he got comfortable with, with it as like a real um, fleshed out thing. It was also that added element of it being like last minute, like, oh, we just tapped into something and it's like, we got some gold, you know what I mean? I thought for forever that that version would be the version, but we it ended up going in a little bit of a different direction. But not the not the arrangement or the song that stayed pretty much the same. 
we'd actually recorded Living Proof. That would have been the third time we did it. We did the demo, and then we did one at Electric Lady, and then we did the Vox version. Yeah, I think the um, the guitar solo, drums, and bass are live on the album. Long story short, we do a bunch of takes, and then it was like that one. Oh, that's two ago. Felt amazing, right? We were all in agreement. And then Sean was like, I'm going to go get a sandwich or something, an Astro Burger. But then when, by the time Sean came back, all the digital files were erased from the session. And Sean had never seen it. Like it took, I don't know, two days maybe to reconstruct through like deep diving. As deep a dive of, as I've ever seen into a hard drive disk allocation folder. I just remember that was like almost a song that never was because of this crazy, just computer glitch. I had forgotten totally about that. Completely blocked it out. solo at Vox also, which with that amazing uh, bend on it, which is like one of the craziest things I've ever heard. I mean, it sounds so good. Need to tip the cap to that shit. Just live, you know, you couldn't repeat that shit. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff on the album that's pretty live. Usually when, if the song is done, then that's usually when, um, once you figure the song out, it's definitely the most inspiring way to record. acoustic um which was kind of a new that was like the new direction of the thing that was the new direction i mean the so the acoustic guitar that starts the record that starts living proof like adam recorded that like as if it were a complete afterthought i don't know if that was in the script or not i just remember it was almost like you're like hey i gotta i gotta do this one thing real quick and just sort of well when i was work when i was working on the at home when i was working on the solo that's I'd come up I was just playing that on the electric like quietly just the thumb the thumb strum so I went and did it but I didn't think it would like I didn't think it would be like the first sound yeah but I remember it when I'd finished it I was like oh that makes way more sense in the track than I even thought it would yeah I mean I just remember that being that was a very big aha moment from my perspective cuz the song is like so dramatic but it's just to have that like really intimate, almost like casually played, like almost like you're just fiddling on the couch style. Right. 
That song's definitely probably my favorite song. Even though I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) I think every song was definitely cooler than it was when we started the sessions, which is, which was like a big breakthrough, you know, like victim was like, went from this 808 thing, tape loops to then all of a sudden had this cool piano on it, bass, percussion, vocoder, drum machine stuff, but it still wasn't really, um, it was still like one kind of one note, you know, harmonious dream. That one ended up not having a lot of the stuff we did there, but it at least took it from the demo to making it real and and starting to think about it as a song. And I Don't Want to Wait, we did a bunch of stuff there. That was cool. The saxes, the DI guitars, a bunch of guitar stuff. Even on Fast Jam or Wasted, whatever it's called, Charlie did that prepared piano thing on Count Basie's piano. Was it the piano? It was the piano. Or was it the marimba? Yeah, yeah. As piano, like with my like harmonics with my left hand on, yeah, you know, muting the strings with my left hand. Yeah, that shit was from there, and that that was like something that like like when the set keep sessions keep evolving, and you're like starting a new session, but you're importing a few key things. It's like all these things we did at Vox were the key things that I was like, all right, well, we gotta base it around that mar- that piano loop or this, you know. Well, I, I think a big part of making the record is exploring all the possibilities of where a song can go and the sonics of where everything can go. And, and Vox was so great because it has such kind of like any instrument that you can imagine is there and you can pick it up and play it. We got a lot of sweet shit done there. So you couldn't have done it in any other studio for sure. I don't think the songs were really fully realized at that point, but we painted a lot of nice, used a lot of nice paint, you know. I remember afterwards just being like, that was, that was great, right? It felt great. And I mean, the record's done, right? I mean, basically, like the record's basically done. Like it's got to be. It felt <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's what makes our record sound good, that I'm not the one <laughs> who's like, yep, all done. At Vox, we did saxes one day, and that was a pretty wild, definitely the most ridiculous sax setup I've ever seen. Yeah. Because we had the contact mic going into um, Big Muff, an old Big Muff, right? Yeah, and then it was going into the other room until the two amps cranked. We even tried that on bass flute. I don't think that that didn't make the record, but it sounded awesome. Shocker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a day where I was like, what are we doing? Like, not the, the, not the plan, it was just like no. so much chaos. Yeah, yeah. And it, but it's fun. That's, you know, that's the stuff that you're happy you try it, you know. And we did, there was some, there's stuff, you know, it is on the album, so. And that's where, uh, let's try that again, <laughs> right? Well, oh, yeah, who that's, is that? That's John, that's John. right, from, that's from Vox. John. That's, that's John, me? yeah. No. Um, let's do that again. We recorded that super fast we were recording on that song almost double time i think so when you drop it down to normal john sounds really 
really low. I mean, I've I've been wanting to keep that in there for three years. I knew I always knew it was gonna be on there. Yeah. <laughs> The Super High Quality Podcast is put together by me, Dominic East, with all sorts of help from Adam. Engineering help from Andrew Garrett. I'd like to thank the guys in the band. Adam Granovsky. Dave Hartley. Charlie Hall. Robbie Bennett. Anthony Lamarca. John Natchez. And this week's special guest, Mike Block. Thanks also to Jack Hedges at Atlantic Records as well as Caroline Klein and everyone else at Fort William Artist Management. The War on Drugs new album, I Don't Live Here Anymore, is out now on Atlantic Records and Tapes. We'll see you next time. <laughs>